As um, you drive, maybe as you're driving here uh, to, to church, uh, to the gathering of, of the church, or as you drive on the streets of Orlando, I don't know if um, you ever take time to notice um, the billboards that are lining the highways in the streets of, of Central Florida. Uh, if you have, you've noticed that there are uh, several different kinds of, of billboards. But I think the category of billboard that I see more of than any other category is billboards for lawyers. And you guys notice that? Anyone? Okay, billboards for uh, John Morgan or billboards for uh, such and such. Um, what's that guy's attorney, Dan Newlin, um, who a lot of us see hanging around Winter Garden Village and, and different attorneys. And you think about why that is, it's because we're a litigation-filled culture where people are always trying to make money and they realize I can always uh, make money by suing somebody. So if you're going to sue somebody, you need a good lawyer in order to win your case. If you're being sued, you need a good lawyer so that you don't lose all this money, right? Because this is the kind of culture that we live in. It's a culture rich in lawsuits because people are trying to make money. And so as a result of that, companies and manufacturers need to hedge their bets. They need to be extra cautious so that they don't fall victim and and prey to lawsuits. Therefore, they put a lot of warnings on um, packaging, on the things that they they sell. So I want to read a few uh, labels for products and some actual warnings uh, from warning labels that you uh, may have read before. So there's one for a can of pepper spray that's used for self-defense. You guys know what pepper spray is? It says, warning, may irritate eyes. (laughs) That's funny, right? Uh, There's another one on a child-size Superman Halloween costume. Wearing of this garment does not enable you to fly. Funny. Um, This is on packaging for an iron, right? It says, do not... Iron clothes on body. <laughs> Anyone tried to do that before? Okay, just me. Okay. Um, on the wrapper of a fruit roll-up, you guys know what fruit roll-ups are? Fruit roll-up snack? It says, remove plastic before eating. Yes. Um, on, a case, <clears throat> on the case of a chocolate CD, so this is a chocolate CD that was um, for Valentine's Day. It says, do not place this product into electronic equipment. Awesome. And then um, lastly, on a cardboard sunshield. These are important in Florida. Sunshield says, do not drive with sunshield in place. (laughs) That's awesome. So what happens when you ignore the warnings on these labels? Bad things happen. That's pretty simple. Bad things happen when you ignore the warnings. In the same way, God has given countless warnings to us in Scripture. And what happens when you ignore the warnings? Right? Inevitably, uh, bad things can happen to us. I want to ask that question as we look at a series of warnings that were given to, the, to an ancient people. As we continue to look at this series, it's all about Jesus. We have been motoring through. We've gone. Finally, we finished Genesis last week. 18 weeks it took us to get through Genesis. And we've got to the end of of Genesis, and we're starting Exodus for two weeks, just two weeks, I think, maybe three weeks, but for uh, right now, for two weeks, we're going to look, just run through Exodus and talk about some of the main themes. But as we do, we remember last week, we got to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 kids, and they kind of had a population explosion. They got us into Egypt. You remember this? Uh, Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt. There's a famine throughout the land. In all the, that, that world, and so people from all over the world came to Joseph and said, could you give us food? And the last group of people that we saw was the Israelites, his family members. He who had the power to condemn them 
forgave them, blessed them, took care of them, and gave them passageway safely. And so we've gotten to this place where Joseph is a hero amongst the Israelites. He's also a hero amongst the people of Egypt and a hero throughout the world. We're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 1. And we're going to read Exodus chapter 1 to set the backdrop. And then I'm going to walk us through the next 10 chapters by explaining what's going on and then highlighting some thoughts that are important in explaining how this is all about Jesus. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, this is God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers... And all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land of Egypt was filled with them. Then a new king, a pharaoh, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose, name, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God. He gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is God's word. Right, so you've got Joseph and his people. They multiply, they spread. Joseph is the man in Egypt. Comes a time when Joseph dies. That whole generation dies off with them. But the Israelites continue to multiply, keep on having children. They went from one Abraham to another one Isaac to another one Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, two of them, but then they spread out 12, 70, all kinds of population explosion. And so a king rises, a new pharaoh rises in Egypt who didn't remember all the great things that Joseph did. He forgot that Joseph had led them into all of this uh, land of plenty, had led them into all this prosperity. And so this new Pharaoh rises up and all he sees is this 
um, oppressed minority, and they're a significant minority, but they're growing, and they're rising, and they're increasing in numbers. And so he says, these people are becoming a threat. We need to do something. So he enslaved them and made them work harder, taskmasters, beating their backs, whipping them, giving them all kinds of forced labor, all kinds of hard things. But the more they were oppressed, it says the more they multiplied. And so he decreed genocide over them, said we need to wipe out the Israelite people. And finally gets to a point where the Pharaoh says, every boy that's born, we need to kill by throwing into the Nile River. Every girl can live. Why? The girls would become uh, captured into the people of Egypt. They become mistresses. They become um, people that for, for pleasure, they just become comfort women in the, in, um, amongst the people of Egypt. The men, however, they, the boys they would kill. But it didn't work out. Right? It didn't work out. People kept on growing. One boy in particular, chapter 2, talks about this boy named Moses. Okay, born to a woman, and the, it says in the book of Hebrews, the mom and dad saw that he was not an ordinary boy. So they raised him as much as they could in secret. And then finally it came time where they needed to let go because it would be known that there's, a, there's an Israelite baby boy. And so they put him in a basket and they time it so that Pharaoh, the king, his daughter, the princess, goes out to bathe at the Nile River. And she says, when she's there, I'm going to send Moses down the river. And so she sends Moses down the river. His older sister, Miriam, is watching this happen. And sure enough, Pharaoh's daughter, who's taken a bath at the Nile River, sees this baby. She brings him out of the water. She raises him as her own because of her kindness and mercy towards Moses. She raises him to be her own son, and he rises up as one of the princes of Egypt. Okay, so Moses gets older, and the question becomes, will Moses continue to live out his adopted identity as an Israelite slave, as the prince of Egypt? Or will he go back to identifying himself with the Israelite people, with the oppressed group of people from whom he was born? It's either Egypt or Israel. He's got a choice. Okay, prince of Egypt or a slave of Israel. To be a child of the king or to be a child of God. Which one is he going to choose, luxury or oppression? And so the question is fresh in the minds of the readers as they're thinking about this. One day, Moses sees his people being enslaved. People are beating their backs, and he, he just he can't take it anymore because an Egyptian taskmaster is driving one of his uh, Israelite people, Hebrews, into the ground. He's just whipping him. He's beating him. And so Moses looks around. He sees there's no Egyptian people around. And he takes this Egyptian taskmaster and he slaughters him. He kills him. He kills this guy and he buries him under the Egyptian sand, thinking that no Egyptian people have seen him. And the question that he's thinking is, now will the Israelites recognize that like Joseph, I, an Israelite, have been promoted to become a prince of Egypt so that I might deliver my people? So this is what Moses is wondering. Will my people now follow me out of slavery into the land of the promise? Is now the time that I will raise up, rise up as a deliverer of my people? The very next day, okay, Moses asking these questions, he sees two of his own people arguing with each other. They're fighting with each other about something. And Moses says, why are you guys fighting? You can't kill each other off. And one of them says to Moses, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me? 
like you killed the Egyptian yesterday. And all of a sudden, Moses realizes that he doesn't have the trust of his people. Not only that, cat's out of the bag. The Egyptians know Pharaoh's coming after him. And so he takes off and he goes to the desert of Midian. Forty years old, a prince of Egypt flees into the desert. And this is where he would spend the next 40 years of his life in retirement. Thinking about his people, attending sheep in the desert with his father-in-law. 40 years later, Moses is now 80. Right? For the last 40 years, all he's been doing is hanging out with sheep. Okay? The, nothing princely, nothing kingly, just kind of tending sheep, maybe fighting off a wolf or a lion or something like that here and there. Just, that's all he's doing, 40 years of his life. And one ordinary day, he's hanging out by a bush in the desert, and God speaks to him because the Israelites have cried out in their oppression. For 40 years, they're crying out. They're saying, we can't take this anymore. And so God meets Moses at a bush, and he says, Moses, I've heard my people cry. Go down and deliver my people from Egypt. And so here's Moses, and he's scared to death. He hasn't had much human interaction, so he doesn't know how to deal with people. You know, people who all their lives, all they do is they spend time with animals or they spend time with computers. They can't deal with people. And so here God is telling Moses, you need to go and you need to tell the most powerful man in the world to let my race of, of, of slaves go. And Moses is scared to death. He's like, I can't even talk properly. Like, how will I know? And as God said to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph before him, I will be with you. And Moses says, what, what, what is your name? What will I tell them? And God gives this, I mean, he gives this, we read it, it's a very cryptic and an un understandable, mysterious phrase. He says, I am the great I am. In other words, he's saying, he, he's saying, I'm not I used to be God. I'm not I will be God. He's saying, I am God. I always was, I always will be, and I'm God now. I am, there's no one like me. I always was before anything, before time began. My glory will go beyond all fame, past, present, future. This is who I am. I have no rival. I have no equal. And God says, go tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you, and I will arm you with miracles in order that he might know that there's no one like our God. And so we get to chapter 7 in Exodus. How will this 80-year-old fearful, can't talk properly man, bring deliverance to his people from the grips and the clutches of the most powerful man in the world. Three thoughts as we look into God's word. Here's the first thing. God sends warnings to get our attention. God sends warnings to get our attention. Every um, parent has probably experienced this before, but every parent, when their child is acting up, they give them warnings and say, hey, you know what? If you keep on doing this, if you keep on lying, if you keep on punching your brother, if you keep on pulling your sister's hair out, then um, you're going to have to go to timeout. If you keep on doing that, then you're not allowed to go play with your friends. Keep on doing that, then you, you, you can't watch Yo Gabba Gabby. Keep on doing that, then, um, you know, and, and the penalties escalate. Warnings escalate. There was one, uh, one couple in uh, one group of parents in our church who um, the highest level of, of warning was if you don't behave, then we're going to take you to the boogeyman's house. <laughs> and the two kids were like, oh, my gosh, we don't want to go to the boogeyman's house. So they would straighten up. I was talking with um, one of our former pastors here, uh, youth pastor, Pastor Goose. You guys remember him? He's got uh, two kids now, but his oldest is a boy named Micaiah. 
And Micaiah was having, you know, going through his terrible twos and he was acting up. And so Pastor Goose said, okay, um, we have to spank you, Micaiah. And they spanked him one time really hard. He says, every time Micaiah acts up now, whenever they say, uh-oh, Micaiah, do you want to get spanked? He straightens up. Right? He get, he, they, get, they get his attention by giving him warnings. This is what we do as people, as parents. Teachers do this. And this is what God does also. In order to get our attention, he gives us warning. So here's Pharaoh. He's got this group of people who are enslaved in Egypt. And Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I won't. And so God, wanting to show his power, sends warnings in order to get his attention. How does he do this? He sends a bunch of plagues. I don't know if you've ever studied uh, biblical history. You've seen the Prince of Egypt. But God sends ten plagues. Right, things that would get the attention of the people of Egypt. The first plague he sends is he turns the Nile River into blood. Would this get your attention? Right, if you were going out to take a bath and that river that you used to bathe in turned into blood, that'd get my attention. I'd be like, hold up, wait a second, this isn't right. Not only the Nile River, but every body of water in Egypt turned to blood. So, we, yeah, we've got some guys who love going surfing. So Kenny goes out to New Smyrna Beach. He's going to surf, and all of a sudden he's like, hold up, it's all blood. <laughs> uh, that kind of stinks. And then he says, well, if I can't go surfing, maybe I'll go, you know, I'll sneak into, this is a bad idea, but he'll, I'll sneak into one of the pools here. And he, he's about to jump in the pool, and he realizes the pool is all blood. He's like, oh, man, I've got sand all over me. I need to wash it off. He turns on the shower water, and it's all blood. Would that be enough to get your attention? I think it would for me. That's kind of nasty. But Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. Well, he says, oh, I'll let them go. But as soon as God says, okay, he removes the blood, then he says, I'm not going to do it. So the second thing he sends, he sends frogs. Hey, that would be enough to get some of our attention, right? Like frogs just jumping around everywhere. Frogs like everywhere in your kitchen. You, you, you open your sleeping bag and frogs jumping out at you. You open your refrigerator and frogs are like flying out at you. This is insane. Frogs everywhere. You got to hide your kids, hide your wife. They're coming for you. Like all of the frogs everywhere. That be enough to get your attention? That would be, definitely would be enough to get mine. But then third, he sends lice. Ugh, yuck. Ew. Some of y'all get itchy just thinking about lice, right? Yeah. Some of y'all itching your heads and ugh, lice. Like knits everywhere, trying to pick all that stuff and scratching everywhere and everyone's scratching their head. Yucky, yucky, yucky stuff. But it still doesn't get their attention. And so he sends more plagues, one right after another, boils on cattle and, and animals and, and sheep and livestock, all kinds of stuff like that, flies. Flies are nasty, aren't they? Like those big old flies and, you know, I don't know, American flies, they're, they're kind of scared of people. But if you go to other countries, the flies aren't afraid of you. So they'll like be running into your head and stuff like this, running into you. They don't care. I don't know if they can't see well or not. But I remember my, the first mission trip I, I went to was in Mexico when I was in high school. This was like hardcore roughing it. I mean, we were, we were like, it was nasty. We were camping. The bathrooms were, were terrible. It was basically um, these Mexican folks had dug out these massive holes. And so they're in the ground, maybe about six to eight feet deep and a, a, just a, they dug a massive ditch and then they built this this structure where they um, put a big thing of plywood and they made multiple stalls out of it and they cut a hole in it and so you would go and you would do your business in that place 
But there's no septics. They don't clean that stuff out. So for years upon years upon years of rotting feces and urine and human excrement just piled on top of one another, it is the pinnacle of nastiness. I've never experienced anything like that until I went to China and experienced something like that. But this was disgusting. It was filthy. So, I mean, the, the, the stench was just, don't eat lunch today. The stench that, that you, you would experience, we had to, we tied bandanas, sprayed cologne on bandanas, wrapped them around us so that we couldn't, I mean, it was putrid. But in that kind of a place, the flies that would fly out of that place were just wretched. It was disgusting. Some of them were big old flies, size of like bees and disgusting. But in Egypt, with the plagues, they weren't localized to the toilets, to the commode. It was everywhere. Flies everywhere. And God's sending these warnings to get their attention. Why? The same reason parents try to get the attention of kids, so that they will change from the status quo to living in line with how they're supposed to be living. But they still don't. So God sends more plagues, right? Five more plagues. Darkness falls. All kinds of craziness, attacking the livestock, disease. This be enough to get your attention? That's yeah, pretty nasty stuff. But the, but the crazy thing about it is not only did God send these ten plagues, but the, the first nine of them at least, there was a differentiation between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So when these things would be afflicting the Egyptians, the Israelites would be completely fine. So darkness falls over all of the houses of Egypt, but the Israelites are completely fine. They don't need their iPhone lights or they don't need their smartphone lights to, to walk around. They've got it's completely bright out for them, but for the Egyptians, it's completely dark. Same thing, flies all around the Egyptians, but no flies around the Israelites. Boils attacking the livestock and the cattle and the sheep of the Egyptians, but the Israelite ones are fine. That would be enough if I was an Egyptian person, if I was Pharaoh, to, to, to realize that there's something happening here that maybe I should let the people go. But he doesn't. What's happening with these plagues on a deeper level? Let me explain on a deeper level what's going on here. You know, Egypt, just like many of the other ancient cultures, had a pantheon of gods. That means they had multiple gods. Okay? Every culture in that day had many gods except for Israel. They were the only one who believed that there was only one God. But the Egyptians had a bunch of different gods. They had the god uh, for fertility. So if you're having a hard time having kids, you pray to the fertility god. If you have a hard time with your health, you pray to the god of sickness. And the god of sickness, they suppose, would cure them. You have a hard time with your crops. You pray to the God of, of crops and of weather, and they would take care of it. If you need rain to fall, if you need sun to come out, then you would pray to that God, the sun God, all these different gods. And if you think about the plagues that are coming to the people of Egypt, every single plague was attacking one of the major gods of Egypt. Because the Nile River in Egypt, was their source of life. They believed that life was found in that river. So when that river turns to blood and animals start dying, they realize that our source of life is impotent to provide life against the hand of God. And so God is showing them, there's no one like me. There's no one like me. Frogs, frogs in Egypt were considered to be sacred. 
In Hindu cultures in India, they say holy cow. In Egypt, they say holy frog. I know that sounds funny because we don't, we don't say that a lot, but frogs were holy in that culture. The, the goddess of fertility had multiple frog heads. Right? And so the, 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 the image of a frog was a symbol of life and of fertility. Yet even the goddess of life was unable to keep the frogs, the sign of life, from piling up into heaps of reptilian death. That's just the way that it was. And God was showing them that you are powerless. Your idols are powerless. Right? Same thing, on and on with every single one of these crops, every single one of these, I'm sorry, every single one of these plagues, God was attacking one of the idols of their day to show that I am far greater than the idols that you serve. How does God get our attention today? I think he does it in much the same way. He attacks the idols of our heart to show us that the idols that we think can give us so much are powerless when they stand up against God. What does that mean? Here's what it looks like. Some of us have made an idol of our money. So we're working ourselves, driving ourselves into the ground in order that we might make more money. And we realize that the more money we have, the more frustration comes from having more money. The more money we have, the more we buy stuff and those things start breaking. We have to pay more and more money in order to repair these things, in order to get warranties, in order to maintain these things. And God is saying, listen, if that's happening, then maybe, maybe God is warning you to get your attention to let you know that the things that you've put your hope in are really powerless to give you the satisfaction that you're longing for in your life. Some of us have, put our, have made an idol out of our relationships out of a boyfriend, out of a girlfriend, out of a group of friends. And as we've given too much to that, all of a sudden we're realizing how much these people are disappointing us. And uh, these things one by one are being stripped away from our lives. I thought this person was my best friend, but she stabs me in the back. I thought this person was going to be with me forever, but he do- he's not. We realize that, hey, you know what? Maybe we've made an idol out of these things. And God is warning us to get our attention to bring us back from status quo to the way that we need to be living. The pleasures that we thought were once so good, will make us so happy. All of a sudden, those things don't make us happy anymore. And God is saying, you are powerless. The status that you thought you could have, at one point it brought you the applause of people. And everyone was 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 declaring that you're great, they're saying you're all this, and all of a sudden, those people aren't saying those things anymore. Or those things aren't giving you the same kind of benefit. And you're realizing that these things don't give me what I thought they could give me. See, God attacks the idols of our heart to show us that these things can't give us what we think we're looking for. And if we're on a place where, man, the, the idols that we've been looking to are starting to, to not satisfy, and we got to heed the warning of God and listen to what God is saying. Listen to what he's saying. More of the same thing isn't going to do it. Okay? Just because money failed you one time doesn't mean that having more of it is going to satisfy. Because our hearts were not meant to be satisfied by these things. And so God warns us in order to get 
our attention. This is the first thing. So what happens after that? What happens after that? Pharaoh, with every single one of these things, he says, I'll let you go, but he doesn't. I'll let you go, but he doesn't. The second thing is repentance has to be more than just words. Repentance is more than just words. Every one of these nine, first nine plagues, we'll get to the tenth one with our last point, but every single one of these nine plagues, God was getting the attention of Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, okay, 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 that's enough. I'll let your people go. As soon as God removed the plague, Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let your people go. And so God brought another plague. And Moses said, if you tell me to stop, I'll stop, but you got to let my people go. Pharaoh says, okay, okay, okay. Just remove these frogs for me. Remove the locusts. Remove these things. And so he stops. Moses prays. God stops. But at the same time, Pharaoh says, ah, oh, just kidding. And he goes back to keeping them as his oppressed slaves. You know, you think about this, and, 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 and Pharaoh is a, lot like, is a lot like me and a lot like you maybe. And we pray to God and we say, God, I commit myself to you. And if, if you remove these things, if you show up for me in this place, then I'll commit myself to you. But as soon as God relieves us of that hardship... Then we go back to living the way that we used to live life. It reminds me of the guy who was, who was out one day. He was surfing at the beach, and there were all these shark warnings, and he, he ignored the warnings, and he, he went out surfing anyway. He was a bad man. He had a death wish over him. He knew that he needed to go back to church. All of his friends told him to go to church, and he said, no, I know I need to go. But um, he, couldn't, he couldn't stop the lifestyle that he was living. He was a womanizer. He was a drunk. He was a, a, a druggie, just all kinds of things like that. And so one day he was out surfing. He, he wanted to catch this huge wave, and he's on this massive wave, and he's riding it. And then all of a sudden, the wave flips him upside down, and he falls. And he hits his head on the ground, and he's like, oh, my gosh, a little bit woozy. And then as he's kind of coming to his senses, he sees this huge shark coming right at him, a right? massive shark. And he's like, oh, my gosh, my life is over. And he says, life scenes start flashing before him. He hears the Jaws music coming. Doo, 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 doo. He knows it's all over. Shark opens his big mouth. And in that moment, he prays his prayer to God. He says, God, I'm so sorry. I promise if you deliver me from this shark, I promise you that I will. Right when he's about to finish, miraculously, a group of a thousand fish jump in the air, and they land in the shark's mouth. And the shark swims away. And the guy opens his, out, his eyes, realizes the shark swam away, and he mumbles, hmm, never mind, God. And he goes on living. And a lot of us are like that, aren't we? As soon as the hardship is removed, as soon as we find relief, we say, never mind, God, I didn't really mean that I was going to live a life of celibacy. <laughs> I'm just kidding, God. I didn't, re- I didn't really mean that I was going to teach Sunday school. I didn't really mean that I was going to go to missions this year. I was just kidding. Just playing about that. Just a joke. You know, you're funny. I'm funny. You know, I'm made in your image. Just a joke. But don't you hate when, don't you hate when people are like that? They're just, all, they're all talk. Like Pharaoh, that's, that's what he was. It's all talk. All right, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. And as soon as push came to shove, he said, never mind. I was just kidding. Right, repentance isn't repentance unless there's fruit of repentance in our lives. I remember certain times when 
I would get really frustrated with people who would just talk a lot, but they didn't really back it up. You know, back, back in, you know, in the early 90s, basketball, um, trash talk was not kind of like incorporated and it wasn't like made commercial the way that it is now. Like now it's like this big deal. But back in the day, it was just kind of you, you, would, you would have to listen to trash talk between two players on the court and, and it would be kind of an interesting thing. But in the early 90s, there was a company called And One. They were a basketball apparel shoe company and they started putting out um, this clothing line that had trash talk on their clothing. So you didn't have to talk. You just have to wear the shirt. It was really funny. There would be things like this. And they had this and one. He was a bald guy without a face, and he was dribbling a basketball. And he would say things like, you know, and this is – you're going to say this is really dumb now, but back then it was like cutting-edge trash talk. It said, you call me the bus driver because I'm about to take you to school. Right? So, um, <laughs> it would say things like, stop shooting because <laughs> the backboard has feelings too. <laughs> Uh, you call me Shakespeare because I make plays. <laughs> There's one that said, um, the next play is called Give and Go. <laughs> it's really funny. Next play is called Give and Go. Give up and go home. It's awesome. Like all kinds of trash talk like this. I'm trying to think if there's any. I mean, there were some really good ones. Um, yeah, I mean, there are some lame ones like uh, you call 911 because I'm on fire right now, but all kinds of silly ones like this. But, yeah, there would be guys like that. They would wear these trash talk T-shirts. They would have these bandanas. They'd wear the, the arm sleeve. They'd wear their knee brace. They'd wear, like, the, the decked-out Jordans and just everything about them. They, they just look straight baller. And they start talking smack. I'm sorry, we're trying to guard me. All kinds of things like this. But when they get on the court, they got zero game. Right, they're all like, yeah, you need me on your team. You need me on your team. So we pick them up on their team. You pass them a ball. They can't do anything with it. You know, people like that. It's the most frustrating kind of person that they talk a lot, but they don't have no game. See, these are the kind of people that Jesus grew frustrated with in the Bible. They were the Pharisees who were constantly talking. about all the things that they could do, but they didn't back it up with their lives talking about all the great things that they would do. We fast and we do all these things. But when it came down to it, there was nothing to back up the way that they lived. And Jesus grew frustrated with people like that. Is God trying to get your attention? It's one thing to say, God, I commit myself to you. It's one thing when we do this detox to say, I'm going to do all these things. But at a certain point, repentance isn't repentance unless there's action. Unless there's fruit that is symbolic, that is representative of the decisions that we make, of the confession that we make, of the songs that we sing, of the things that we say we're going to do. Jesus says in Luke, he says, let there be fruit in keeping with your repentance. That's the second thing. Repentance is more than just words. And then the last thing, the last thing that we see, that we can't ignore God forever. We can't ignore God forever. You look into Pharaoh's life. Nine times, God said, okay, here's your plague. Here's your warning. Pharaoh said, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to let your people go. Nine times he doesn't. How many times, let me ask you a theological question. How many times can God be patient with somebody like that? How many times can God be patient with someone who constantly says, I'll do it, I'll do it, 
I'll do it, I'll do it, but they never do it. How patient can God be? How patient is God? When does his patience run out? I think a lot of times we hear that God will forever be patient. He will always be patient. He will always be patient. I'm not sure how theologically astute that statement is. Because at a certain point, we're going to die. And at that point, God's patience is going to run out. So how patient is God? At what point do we need to listen to what he's saying? At what point do we realize that, hey, I've hit the point of no return. I need to turn back to God. At what point does that happen? God has been warning you. He's been speaking to you. You got to get yourself together. You got to turn around. You got to get away from those sins and you got to turn to me. At what point do we, do we finally, at what point does God say it's too late now? If you can imagine with me being in a, in a college lecture hall. There's a group of students, right, 500 of us sitting in a lecture hall. And there's a group of about five, six students. They sit in the very back of the lecture hall. From the get-go, first day of class, they were not interested in what the teacher was talking about. They weren't interested in learning anything. All they wanted was a grade. All they wanted was to cause trouble. They sat in the back of the classroom of a 1,000 people. Capacity, 500 there. Everyone's sitting in the first 500, 600 seats. They're the ones sitting in the back, five, six people. Talking, laughing, watching YouTube videos, throwing things, fighting each other in the back while everybody else is paying attention. First test comes, they skip the test. They go up to the teacher and they say, you know what? We were sick. So sorry, we were sick. Is there any way possible that we could make up this exam? The teacher says, okay, since you are sick, I'll let you make up this exam. So they pay somebody who took the exam already, said, can you give me the test? They get the test. They take it. They get 100% on it. They turn it in their teacher, and they go on living that way. Same thing happens. Second week, third week, fourth week. Another test comes. Same thing happens. Every single exam they take. Throughout the course of that semester, the exact same thing happens. They say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we missed the class. We missed the exam. We were sick. Car had a flat tire. Death in the family, whatever it is. They make up all these excuses. They pay somebody to give them the exam. They take that test. Final exam comes. They've been doing this for six tests throughout the semester. Right? Six tests throughout the semester they've been doing this. The final exam comes. And they skip out on the final exam again. Three days after the final exam, they come to the teacher and they say, teacher, I'm so sorry. So sorry. Same thing happened. I got really sick and I was in the hospital for three days and I couldn't come until now. Wondering if I can, uh, just like last time, just make an arrangement, take the final exam. And the teacher says, no. Students like, what are you talking about? Said, no, you can't take the final exam over. Says, why not? Because you missed the final. But every other exam, right? Every other exam, you let us redo. Says, I'm sorry, you can't do it. Said, what kind of a teacher are you? You're the worst professor ever. What do you how? What do you mean I can't retake? I was sick. I was sick for three days. At what point? 
does a teacher's kindness run out? And is the teacher a bad teacher for not letting them take that final? At what point does the kindness and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God reach an end? If God is warning you, he's warning you in order that he might get your attention so that you could repent and change. But at what point? You see, nine plagues come and go, but the tenth plague, tenth plague, God says, the last one, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 32, 33, God says that Israel is my firstborn son. And in refusing to let the firstborn son of God go, God says, I will demand the firstborn sons of Egypt. And so the 10th plague is a plague of death. God says at midnight, he says at midnight, an angel of death is going to sweep through Egypt and he's going to kill the firstborn son of every child in Egypt. But what's different about this one than all the other nine plagues is that there is no differentiation between the Israelite children in Egypt and the Egyptian children in Egypt. God says the firstborn of every family in Egypt, whether Egyptian or Israelite, will be killed by the angel of death. Why? Why would the Israelite children be killed as well? Because the reality remains that even though they may be the people of God, the fact remains that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You cannot demand justice for all these people and not demand justice for the rest of them. You cannot demand justice for everybody and mercy for some. You can't. Because if it's not justice for, for, for everyone, then it's not justice for anyone. Five people committed a crime. If you let two of them go, but three of them get the death penalty, how is that being just? You cannot demand justice for some and not demand justice for all. And so God says, here it is. But why the firstborn? In later Israelite history, God would demand the firstborn, the first of everything from the people of Israel. The first fruit of their crop. This is why we give our tithe. Why? The first child. The first animal of a batch. The first fruits of a harvest. Why? Why do we give the first part of everything? It's a sign that in giving the first, that everything else belongs to God. So we give our tithe as a way of saying that everything we own belongs to you, God. Not just 10%, but everything we have. And so we give the first to God. So in giving the first son, the Israelites were understanding that not only the first son, but everything after deserves the same thing. He's also saying that every child born into this world deserves to die because we're sinners. There's no differentiation. 
between the Egyptians and the Israelites. But God, in his grace, made a provision for the Israelite children. He said, listen, if you take the blood of an unblemished lamb and you slaughter this lamb, and you take its blood and you spread it over the doorpost of your house, then as the angel of death passes through Egypt, he will pass over the houses that have blood over them. Why? Because he understands that blood has already been shed. That something has taken the place of that child, that death has already taken place. And so an unblemished lamb would be taken and be slaughtered. And the blood of the animal would be spread on the doorpost. And at midnight, the angel of death went through. And every child in Egypt who did not have the blood of the sacrificial lamb was found dead in the morning, including Pharaoh's firstborn son. Nobody is immune Because all of us have sinned. It doesn't matter how rich, how powerful, how strong we are. The same fate is deserving for all. And when that Passover lamb would be killed, they would take that lamb, stripped of its blood, and they would eat it as a sign that fellowship with God has been restored because of the death of an animal. And from that point on, every year, every year, the Israelites would celebrate the feast of the Passover as a reminder that God alone could rescue them from from Egypt, that God alone could rescue them from slavery. Some 1,500 years after Moses, John the Baptist, walking along the shores, of the Galilee, and he would see a man named Jesus, and he would say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Passion Week, Palm Sunday, Jesus rides a donkey into the city of Jerusalem as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He says, this week that they remembered, it was just the time of the Passover feast. Why? Because Jesus is making it crystal clear that he is the Passover lamb. He is the unblemished lamb that would be slain for our sins. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke that bread and he said, this is my body. He took the blood and he poured it out. He said, this is my blood. I am the sacrificial lamb. Whenever you eat this meal, you are reminded that fellowship with God has been restored. Because Jesus Christ, he is the Passover lamb. Every single one of us will stand before God in judgment one day. And the question is, will we, like the Israelites, take the punishment upon ourselves for the sins that we've committed? Or will we put our trust in the Passover lamb who was sacrificed in our place? Just like the Israelites, every single one of the first nine plagues, they were spared simply because they were Israelites. But with the last one, the most important one, they needed to make a choice. 
Listen, being here doesn't mean that you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Coming to church, a worship service, doesn't mean you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Being in, in Coming to this gathering for three years, four years, five years, doesn't make you a child of God. The fact that your parents have been going to church all their lives doesn't make you a child of God. Being a good person doesn't make you a child of God. The only thing that makes you a child of God that covers you in the blood of the Lamb is that you have made a decision that I take my trust off of myself and I put it in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the only unblemished, perfect Lamb, the only Lamb who is worthy. And by Him alone, by Him alone, can I stand before God and know that I will not be punished, but that His punishment, has, my, my punishment has been taken by another. It's all about Jesus. And it's all for him. Let's pray together. As today, um, we're in the same place that the ancient Israelites were. Being the church, we may consider ourselves to be the people of God, but within the people of God, a choice still needed to be made by each individual to put their own trust in Jesus Christ. In a couple moments, as you think about this, in a couple moments, I want to give an invitation just to to, to quietly um, pray and then to to just quietly raise your hand. If there's anyone in here who feels like, you know what, I need to put my trust in Jesus Christ. God has been warning me. God's been getting my attention. God has been seeking me. He's been showing me the bankruptcy of my life, and I'm in need. The things that I've lived for have failed me. The things that I've lived for have not satisfied me. The things that I've lived for Compared to what God promises to me, these things promise, but they don't fulfill. They don't satisfy for me. I need Jesus in my life to to be my forgiver and to be my master, to be my Lord. I'm going to invite us to take a couple moments to pray for those of us who are here, who are children of God already. You've made that confession. And let's pray and just give thanks to God for what he's done. Give thanks to God for what he's done in your life. And just declare thanksgiving for renewing fellowship between you and an almighty God. And for the rest of us in here, if you haven't made that decision, and maybe God would be speaking to your heart right now. Maybe God would be calling out to you now, just saying your name. If you feel like in your heart of hearts, there's something that is speaking to you, that's ministering to your heart. And this is the spirit of God just talking to you, saying, I want to be in a relationship with you. Revelation 3.20 says, Jesus stands at the door of your heart. He knocks. He says, I want to come in. If anyone opens a door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. So if we can um, just take a moment right now just to pray to the Lord God. Say, Lord, if whatever you're, you're speaking to me, help me to respond to you in faith. So let's pray for a couple moments in, in silent prayer. And then um, in, in a moment, I'm going to give an invitation for anyone who wants to pray this prayer together. Let's just pray silently. Uh, for a few moments, and we'll continue. Guys, I, I really feel like um, this morning, there may be some people that God is speaking to right now about this. I'm just going to ask all of us to keep our eyes closed and, and to pray together. And just quietly reflecting and, and, and praying. But if that person that I described that describes you. You're like, I need Jesus in my life. Promises that today could be a day of change, of transformation for you. 
If you feel like you need Jesus in, in your life, there's, you know, there's no coercion. Um, if no one raises their hand, that's okay. But if you feel like, yeah, God's speaking to me, I'm just going to invite you with, um, you know, from where you are just to, to raise your hand. I can see you and, and recognize you, and, and we can uh, pray together. If anyone like that just feels like, yeah, I need Jesus in my life. I don't know if there's anyone here like that. Do you feel like God is speaking to you or, or not? But in the event that there are people like that who may not want to raise their hand right now, I'm just going to pray over us um, and pray truths into our lives. If you believe this, if you confess this, right, these are the things that the Bible says we need to confess and believe uh, to be a child of God. So I'm going to pray this, and then I'm going to give us a couple more moments just to pray to the Lord God as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have made a way possible because we um, are sinners. We failed you. And we fell short of your glory. And your word tells us that the price of sin is death. We know that every wrongdoing has consequences. And to the degree that we do bad things against people of greater worth, the greater the consequences. <clears throat> to a God who is infinitely worthy and infinitely holy. When we sin against you, the punishment is an infinite punishment as well. But we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you've made it possible for an infinitely holy Son of God to take our place in order that wrath might be diffused away from us and placed on the only Son of God. Jesus, we thank you that you have done for us what only you could do. Thank you that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you for this grace that is at work in us. We pray again that you would come and, and remove our sin from us as we confess it to you, that you would be our master and you would be our Lord. You would help us to be the kind of people that you're calling us to be. Thank you so much for loving us. And Father, for those in here who have not um, put our trust in you yet, Pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak to their hearts and continue to get their attention, continue to woo them and draw them and show them the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the bankruptcy of the idols that we tend to put our trust in. Help us, Lord. Thank you so much. Let's just spend a couple moments as we um, continue to prepare to come to the Lord's table ask the Lord that he would renew us and purify our hearts. If there's anything that we need to confess before the Lord, um, let's do that as we um, prepare to come to this table of grace. Let's pray for a couple moments, asking the Lord to cleanse and to purify our hearts. Father in heaven, we thank you um, so much for this grace that you've given to us. We think about what it would be like to bring before you a lamb an innocent lamb, and to slaughter it. Maybe we would feel sad that a lamb would take our place. But when we think about what that represents and how Hebrews tells us that the blood of no animal could really remove our sin, but that they were just pointers showing us Jesus. 
We think about not that lamb now, but we think about the pure, perfect Son of God and Him being slaughtered on the cross. The darling of heaven, crucified in order that we might live. But our hearts are filled with an unspeakable kind of gratitude that you would love us and you would woo us and that you would go to that cost in order to get our attention. We thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy that has withheld from us what we deserve. We thank you for loving us. Would you continue to meet with us here as we commit this time to you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.